In the West today, and throughout much of the 20th century, rapid Asian economic development was something that proceeded so consistently that it appeared as if by natural law. Like Japan before it and with China today, however, behind the scenes were often very driven leaders who, in South Korea's case, seized power in a military coup and tightly coupled state economic policy with support for Chaebol conglomerates in key sectors of heavy industry focused on export-led growth. Tonight we are joined by Borizoi, friend and expert on many things Korean, to help us better understand Park Chun-hee, the man who ruled South Korea for 18 years during the period of its most rapid development. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been time, dear. The the podcast. Hello and welcome to the myth of the 20th century. Today we are joined by a very special guest, Borzoi, whom I just did a very nice show with about the movie. You're going to have to correct me here, Borzoi, but Simildo is how I would say it. How's it pronounced? Shimido. Uh, Thank you. And I also have my wonderful co-hosts, Nick, Hank, and Hans. Please say hello. Hello. Hi, everyone. I will try to restrain my autism as much as possible because the thing is, it's very useful like with my, you know, the what I know. But I'm like a shotgun when it comes to this stuff, so I'm going to try and keep it focused. I'm going to try to stay focused this episode. And, I'm going to uh, need your help for that. And and I think it'll be I think it'll be just fine. But I just wanted to <laughs> give one shout out to our main man on the blockchain who gave us a very coincidental uh, amount of Bitcoin zero point oh one four eight eight exactly. Thank you very much. I'll say no more. Uh, so today's topic is about, and I'm going to mispronounce this one again too. But this is how an American would say it: Park. Chun He. This is the <laughs> Korean president, prime minister, dictator, depending on whom you ask, uh, from 1961 to 1979 when he met his uh, untimely death by assassination, I believe. Uh, but he was, uh, yes. he was a strong man of South Korea. Yes. And we often associate North Korea with being militaristic and run by the Kim family. But in South Korea's case, they actually had a very tough guy running the show for their beginning era as well uh, after the Korean War ended, or actually officially did not end, but there was a ceasefire Mm -hmm. in, what, 53? Uh, There was Sigmund Rhee, I believe, and then he was was kicked out by (laughs) a military coup by Park. But how do you say it? No, actually, no. Actually, that's not not accurate. Clean it up then, please. All right, so let me let me clean up a little bit of the timeline here. 
So I, do you want me to do the whole name thing? Because I'll, I'll do the name thing if you want. Well, yeah, we the, were talking about this because, you know, the funny the joke about Koreans is they all have one of three names. It's either Park, Kim, or Lee. But apparently I've been saying it wrong the whole time. So there's more than three. Yeah. Or there, well, there isn't. In, in terms it's just of said names, differently. It, it's, it's, and this is, one of, this is completely true. Uh, 50% of Korean surnames are going to be one of five names. It's... Uh, I'll do it the American way first. Uh, Kim, Lee, Park, uh, Che, and I think Jung is the other one. It was Jung or Jung. Now, the thing about Korean names, though, is the way that they, I think the way it's described is that the consonants are aspirated or unaspirated. Basically, what it breaks down to is they're in between letters. So, it's not a B sound or a P sound. It's more in between. It's not, you know, we all know the LR thing. Uh, and with, and the same thing with G's and K's and T's and D's. They're not, stri- I mean, they, they actually have separate letters that are much more pronounced on the, on like, say, like the, the B or the P side. side. Uh, but a lot of, you have, you'd have to read Hungle to kind of, to kind of see what I'm, what I'm saying here exactly. But yeah, so we see it as Park Chung Hee. And the way we would speak, the, just the way we speak, we're, we're much more definite on that stuff. But the way it would be, and I'm not going to be good at this either. I'm not a native speaker, but it's going to be closer to uh, Park Chung Hee. And actually, it's not even more, it's not even really a, ch- it's more like a just, and actually, you know, um, what's her name? That uh, Sarah Jung. Her oh, the letter that New York Times. that Jung that J letter is the same thing as, as the one that's in uh, Jung Hee's. So it's like yeah, so it's it's yeah, it's so it's it's Park Jung Hee, and uh, the funny thing about Singmin Rhee, so he's the first president of South Korea, and even he, the funny thing is is that we say Park Jung Hee, we say his name in the order that Koreans have their names with family name first and then given name. So, you know, if he were, if he had been born in America, he'd be Chunghee Park. The, despite that fact that we, you, we do it that way, we don't do that with Singmin Rhee, the first president of South Korea. His name would have been, actually been uh, Lee Sung, Lee Uh We, we, we say Lee, but that name is actually more pronounced. It's just, it's literally just E. It's just the letter E. That's how that name is is actually pronounced. Um, I can actually spurg about this for for quite some time, but I want I want like so. What actually happened was you had and we we did the whole Korean War episode, and uh, Sigmund Rhee had been the president of the provincial of the uh, provisional government for South Korea, and he had been agitating for Korean independence with the United States for quite some time. He had been educated at Princeton. He had gone to, he had become, uh, I don't know how friendly he was. He, like he had, he knew Woodrow Wilson. And as I recall, he was actually friendly with Woodrow Wilson. I mean, had hoped that Woodrow Wilson would advocate for Korean independence at the Paris peace conference after world war one. And when that, uh, didn't pan out when Korea was left under Correct. Japanese occupation, it kind of, that it kind of marked this beginning of, 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 of Korean leaders 
understanding that they were never going to get full Western support for their independence and they'd kind of have to find their own way and play the game. So Syngman Rhee becomes this, uh, he's the president of the provincial of the uh, provisional government. Uh, during the 1920s, he actually gets impeached as president of the provisional government. So even from the start, he was seen as this corrupt figure. So when he's brought over to, so after World War II, and we divide the the Korean Peninsula, North and South. Soviets got the North, we got the South. He actually was not the preferred candidate to lead South Korea. So he didn't. So Syngman Rhee didn't come into South Korea as some kind of popular mandate leader of the country. It was more just circumstantial and also corruption because the State Department opposed him getting over there. In fact, there's actually he wasn't even supposed to be issued a passport. He got it through corrupt means through the OSS. So he gets installed as the leader of South Korea, and he leads this through the the Korean War. And then going into 1960, the corruption becomes so bad that there is a popular revolt against him, which leads to a democratic government that only lasted about a year, at which point that's when Park Chung-hee okay. institutes his coup. He actually overthrew a democratic government, and it's because that de- democratic government was paralyzed by all the problems we are familiar with when it comes to democracies. They just, they yeah. could not it's just nobody nothing could get anything done and considering that this is only this is less than 10 years after the korean war and the south was still devastated by that war it just nothing people were desperate for anything and that was Park jung hees moment that's why he was able yeah. to solidify his power pretty quickly yeah it was it was less than less than 10 years it was eight yeah uh and i think one of the things he said upon Taking power now. I don't, I'm not privy to the specific details of how he actually pulled the coup off. Uh, I had it in my notes. I was actually curious about what uh, Hank thought about how that was uh, conducted. If we do get into the details, because I'm always curious about lessons for our country. Uh, but um, what Bach Park, whatever his name is, said. Just go, just go, we'll, we'll just say like I, I'll probably keep saying Park Chung Hee, but just just go with Park. Trust well, me. Well, if you're gonna you'll, if you're think. gonna search engine it, it's spelled like you know uh, Central Park, so it's Park. And yeah. so uh, he said the mandate for him getting in was the incompetence and corruption of the prior governments necessitated this action. And I've always found that sort of language interesting because anytime. Uh, drastic measures are taken the t- people who do that typically are tough guys that may may not know the pr spin but i thought that was actually a very good way to explain what they were doing now you could always say that all coups have some justification whether uh, legitimate or not but i thought in the circumstances in which this happened i could sort of see how that would make some sense and the only thing about that claim, though, that you might be suspicious about is that I think he declared a, a state of emergency that he did not rescind until at least 10 years later. So uh, that one well, is a got, little bit more. We've got like 20 of, ongoing states of emergency in the United States at uh, at any given point in time. Yeah, it's just yeah, like sure. some paperwork you file out when you want to do a thing. Right, right, right. 
Yeah, but but it isn't. It isn't. Sometimes you know people take paperwork more seriously than others. I mean, the Constitution that we hold up as our sacred document in the United States is that's fair. Invariably used by various people, but at the same time, to your point, many people disregard it. So I, I don't know how you in, in practice exercise power uh, when you're not using literal force. You're using legal force, which is the implied threat of physical force, and then you also have money, but. Um, Borzoi, um, do you know any details about how the coup actually took place? Oh man, it's, I'm trying to remember exactly how this, how the exact circumstances so he, he of it He had the military, right? But he was also affiliated with the, the KCIA, the Korean well, Central Intelligence yeah, Agency. Yeah, and, and the thing is that, that the coup would not have been possible without, uh, I don't know. Actually, I think the, the KCIA wasn't created until after the coup. But is the person he that coup could not have gone off without uh, Kim Jong Pil, who he actually has was uh, around in Korean politics. Uh, he only actually passed away two years ago. Uh, he, he had been kind of like this figure that would that would remain behind the scenes as a, as a Korean statesman for quite some time, but. Uh, Kim Jong Pil was not was somebody that our State Department actually he had major issues with. I'm trying. I think it was um, what was his name? There it was. It was some Jewish diplomat who was the, who was the uh, the actual ambassador to South Korea. But he, they were not keen on Kim Jong Pil, uh, being involved with uh, Park Jong Hee at all. But without. He basically, had, uh, Park Jung-hee had all the had amassed the support among other military officers. Kim Jong Pil being the the key part of that, kind of his right hand man in this instance. And he would go on to form the Korean Central Intelligence Agency, which would become okay. his ultimate undoing. And not under Kim Jong Pil, but uh, the agency itself would. But he. I'm trying to remember how exactly he had uh, amassed the exact power. I'm trying to find my my notes on this, but basically, the due to the the state that the uh, that the that the that the Second Republic was in, that was when he uh, made his move because it was uh, it just had it couldn't function because of the factionalism that had it was the that had paralyzed the Democratic Party. That was what the party in power at the time in the economy continued to suffer the effects of that mismanagement and that corruption uh i'm trying to see here if it was what i have i have because i have the downfall of re of sigmund re but the the actual of how the whole coup went down exactly i believe it was he just went into seoul and just because he had the had consolidated support from other military leaders they just they just declared that they were in power. So I believe that's yeah, exactly yeah, how it a went. Self, a self-coup has much different dynamics than a coup-coup. Even as a uh, like a military leader, uh, that has kind of a, a notion of at least uh, much more... Uh, much more explicit, although still implicit, force. When you do a self-coup and you're just, I am president, I did win an election, I have a democratic mandate, and uh, turns out I have that mandate forever. Surprise! Uh, that is a lot easier to undertake than if you're actually trying to uh, seize existing organs that were not under your control to begin with. 
Because you're just so, saying what you will do in the future. Yes. So I I found uh, what I had composed for this. So this is known as the May 16th coup. And the... The way that it was, the way that they made it seem like was that uh, obviously, like you know, smoke and mirrors and theatrics are a huge component of for any kind of military to- takeover. You want to have that component in it. So this was meant. They they tried to make this seem like you know this was like a spontaneous thing that they waited. You know, uh, Pak Junki made a speech saying we have been waiting for the civilian government to bring back order to the country. The prime minister and ministers, however, are mired in corruption, leading the country to the verge of collapse. We shall rise up against the government to save the country. We can accomplish our goals without bloodshed. Let us join in this revolutionary army to save the country. He had been planning this for quite some time, and Pak Chung-hee was actually a figure that they had been keeping an eye on for quite some time because they were aware of his ambition. Just kind of double back a bit about his backstory. He had been born in 1917, seven years into the Japanese occupation of South Korea, in a farm village called Gumi. Now, Gumi nowadays is actually a, a industrial, like a very industrial productive actual city that's because that was his birthplace at the time it was just a farming village he came from basically kind of this impoverished nobility they were called Yangban and when the Yangban system had been abolished when the Koreans kind of came under the Japanese sphere of influence his family had been reduced the status of subsistence farmers so he grows up into this impoverished farming family now and he has this strong ambition he idolizes people like napoleon bonaparte and hitler and other great military caesaristic figureheads for not figureheads figures throughout history and he is also a bit he's also a japanophile so he happily joins the the japanese the japanese imperial military goes through their uh school in manchu uh manchu Chukuo, the the puppet state that they Manchuria. established in, in Manchuria, and he, this is like this is a huge contrast between Sigmund Rhee and Pak Chung Hee because the term he was what the Koreans would disparagingly call a Chin uh, Chi uh, Chin Ilpa, which is a their term for a collaborator. It's anyone who served the Japanese imperial government, and Pak Chung Hee was one of those. He was one of those people, strictly speaking. But after the end of World War II, you know, uh, he's he's actually arrested at one point because he had previously been a member of the Korean Workers' Party. He had briefly been a part of the Communist Party in South Korea, and he had been arrested on those and was actually supposed to be sentenced for execution. He had that sentence commuted, and he ended up serving in the military in a civilian uh, co- uh, component because he had been drummed out. He had been stripped of his service. And it, was o- it wasn't until the Korean War started that he was able to get back into the military where he con- you know, he ma- ma- impressed a lot of people, and that's where he really began building a lot of connections. He uh, had also built connections through his time spent in a lot of military academies. But because of his... Uh, of his status of having served in the Japanese Imperial Army, he contrasted strongly with Sigmund Rhee, who had been, he sp- who Sigmund Rhee had spoken English fluently, and he had been 
a advocate against the Japanese. That's why he had served in as president of the provisional government. So there's an interesting kind of contrast between these two when you have the fall of the Syngman Rhee government and the rise of of Park Chung-hee, who tried to model a lot of his policies on the Japanese on the Japanese policies. But it's they were aware of his ambition, but they really just they ultimately after the Korean War just couldn't stop him as he rose through the ranks and started building these these connections with all these different military officers. I mentioned the one Kim Jong Pil, but he begins building all of these connections to each other. And he the plan always was for he wanted to take power. So but the way they presented it during the May 16th coup was like, oh, this is a spontaneous thing. Democratic government failed this just happened to be the opportunity they took to finally seize power so he, is it fair to say he was planning this before the uh, oh yeah during the re re-government in other words oh yeah. yeah oh absolutely he had a whole i'm trying to find um because i there's a great book if you want to get like it's not easy reading but if you want to get into the uh the nitty-gritty of of this era and the rise of Park chung hee there's a, a a book and it's actually the same book that um matthew Raphael Johnson uh, referenced in the episode he on his show that he did on this called the Park Chung-hee era. It's a series of essays that uh, talk about this time period. He actually had he had kind of formed his own revolutionary vanguard. And that's why you can see some of these, you know, some of these uh, holdover tendencies from when he had briefly been a communist. Um, I don't think he was ever like ideal ideologically. I think he like he's like a communist in the same way that Ho Chi Minh was a communist, where it was a means to yeah. an ends kind of thing. Right. Uh, but you can hear that in the language that he's seeing this as this is what we need to you know this is what we need to do to save this country. And he had but but working that, uh, that that's what he that tells the number the public, of revolutionary but, principles. But yeah. what's what's the to... pitch to the other officers? I mean, like you guys are going to get power under me, and then look, why are they following him? Is he like? really charismatic what what exactly is the appeal to the other people in the military if not government to follow him over these uh state department sanctioned rulers well pak chung he's policy was strong what was it it's um rich country strong army and that was his guiding principle and so the first republic under singman ri is this is this super corrupt uh off a, a corrupt uh, guy who had been part of the of the independence anti-Japanese independence movement. You have to remember that Park Chung Hee, because he's that he's he was a servant of the Japanese. A lot of other military officers had as well. This is a common complaint you'll hear even from Korean nationalists who will go who don't even want to deal with Koreans that ever collaborate with the Japanese. They're that's why they have the derogatory term for them. So you, but a lot of military guys, a lot of the military guys that came up with Park Chung-hee were Japanese military officers because that's how you advance, and or they admired the way the Japanese had modernized and were okay. trying to create this Asian bulwark against the Western imperialist powers, or and they saw this as despite how the Japanese treated the Koreans, they saw this as the way forward, the way to modernize, the way to become an actual power. In the world, and so he represents a faction that had did not have power because they did not have power under Sigmund Rhee. That was they were just kind of part of the military under his corrupt regime, and they certainly weren't going to have power under a democratic regime. So his pitch to them was basically, like, "We 
have been training our whole lives in service to our country and in service, you know, and, and part of this military discipline. Like, I'm going to give us a chance to lead this country in the correct direction. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. And so they take charge, and I have a bunch of notes on the economic policies, but I don't know if that's uh, maybe too technocratic to sort of lead off with. So, Borzoi, like, did you have any any sort of sociological or political perspectives you wanted to add before we dive into the technocratic stuff about uh, building steel mills and things like that? Oh, I found the the note I was referring to. This was the the core plan that. Uh, this is uh his this was his plan for the uh for the coup basically, and he had he had been toying with the idea of a coup during the Syngman Rhee administration as well, and as early as 1956. He uh and what you'll find in this whole I mean this is not uncommon, but with among military officers they tend to have like their little cliques and secret societies and the like that are ways of consolidating power and how to take power. But his, this was his, uh, his game plan, his, uh, core, his guiding, four guiding principles for the coup that he'd ultimately undertake. The first was, the goal is to liberate people from political corruption and economic poverty through a maximum effect dose of medicine. Revolution, recognizing the reality that the country had lost the momentum to reform peacefully uh, the military establishment. The second principle being the revolutionaries shall risk their lives to achieve great righteousness. The third principle was the task of organizing the revolutionary organ shall proceed in top secrecy. And the fourth principle was the decision to undertake the coup is based on an objective analysis of the nation's reality and the people's hopes. And this is this strikes a common theme you're going to see when you see North Korea and South Korea, which is something we kind of talked about on my pause button, is that Ideology doesn't like, the way that we tend to obsess about ideology doesn't matter as much in a lot of these Asian nations. They often they it becomes much more obvious that these are means to an end, and that the distinctions between communism in the north and capitalism in the south often blur distinctions. There's times when you look at Park Chung Hee, and that's part of his background and having been a former communist and having kind of this Nietzschean idea of power that the, he, he doesn't fit like, say like a, um, Oh, uh, what's his name? The, the Singaporean, uh, Lee Kuan Yew, Lee Kuan Yew. He doesn't like have the same kind of mole as a Lee Kuan Yew in that kind of capitalism where there's times where you look at what the things that Pak Chung, he's saying and then in the, and the means he's trying to get to that. It's like, he's not that much different from the north he's just going about it in a different way and these are things you're going to see blend a lot that happens a lot with koreans where sometimes the the distinctions between them are more circumstantial and the inertia of history than like having any more meaning than that yeah i mean points one and four in there basically we want good things and not bad things and yes two and three are and like we're gonna try to win Yes. but sneakily, because it's a coup. Yeah. So in 1961, he takes power, and that's the beginning of his uh, his uh, 18, approximately 18 years of rule in this country. So I, if you wanted to kind of jump into what you wanted to talk about at that point, I think we can now. Well, what, what struck me about the system that he was setting up was just how 
how different it is from the American way of going about running an economy. Uh, Americans don't really have a government that runs anything. It's just sort of a blob of institutions that kind of do their own thing and they sort of coordinate once in a while, but it's a mess and it's, I don't know, it's sort of symptomatic of democracy, but it's also symptomatic of how the culture of America is such that everybody is expecting to kind of be left alone and do their own thing, even though that's not completely true. By contrast with a country like Korea or, frankly, any East Asian country where the government is much more involved in the economy, especially, uh, it's an interesting contrast. Uh, There's a book that... uh, I bought and I'll admit I didn't even bother to read it. It was just, it was so, um, so heavy with examples, not necessarily theory, but I think that's actually uh, very apropos because it was about how Asians run their, their economic systems and they call it like governing, governing the market. Uh, I forget the exact title, but it was something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's state-directed capitalism in the sense that you have these industries that the government wants to support and industries that it doesn't really care about, that sort of ignores. But the ones that it really wants to emphasize, uh, and in Korea's case, uh, typically heavy industry, uh, get tons and tons and tons of support. And they're not really shy about that. In the United States, by contrast, there are industries that get tons and tons of support, but they try to hide it under a lot of uh, rhetoric or obfuscation such that it appears to be a free market, even though it may not be. Uh, In reality, in the United States, the oil industry has a tremendous amount of government uh, tax loopholes that are built in. Uh, It's obviously supported in some of the interventionist wars overseas to a certain degree, uh, setting aside the uh, geopolitical interests of Israel, obviously. Uh, But the uh, the oil industry is big, the financial industry is huge, um, and the pharmaceutical industry is also very influential as well. Uh, but in Korea, the the goal of uh, Park was effectively to do what the Japanese had done during the Meiji Restoration, yes. which was I've talked about this before. Uh, it's no no secret, but the, the Japanese really just just got scared when the Americans uh, showed up with their gunships in uh, 1851 or so and uh, demanded that they start trading with them under this globalist merc- merch- merchandising uh, cosmopolitan system uh, in contrast with their isolationist uh, society. And so the Japanese were, were really mm-hmm. bothered by that and they took on this self-imposed uh, system of modernization in order to remain... Uh, if not uh, above all of that, somewhat independent of external coercion by having some economic power uh, and then also military power backed up by their their economic engine, which in modern warfare you absolutely need. You cannot decouple those because your ability to wage war is directly related to your ability to produce uh, the weapons of war and and the logistics and, and all that stuff. And so it's not just the literal weapons. It's getting people there, supplies, coordinating all that, information flow, all that stuff. And so... Having that uh, model, uh, Park, and being trained by the Japanese, he really admired them. And so he was doing what the Ministry of uh, 
technology and industry in uh, in Japan was doing MIDI, which was targeting export driven uh, companies and industries. And in Japan's case, it was the Keiretsu uh, conglomerates. Uh, in Korea's case, it's the Chable. It's not a huge amount of difference, uh, if not in the concentration in Korea being a little bit higher. It's a smaller country. Maybe that's part of it. Uh, but the the Japanese have a few more. Uh, there's a little more diversity in their uh, their national economic champions. Mitsubishi is is sort of probably the best example where they were making a lot of weapons of war, uh, and they converted into automobiles and electronics and everything else. But they're they're conglomerate, and in Korea's yeah, case, and, it's the and same to understand thing. the extent of yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and to understand kind of the extent of that, because I don't think we I don't think we understand. It's easy for us to understand the complete extent to how much that chable culture permeates Korean society. Like, just go to the go to your um, your bread and circuses. Basically, if you like the the for example, one of the largest chables in South Korea is a company called Lotte, and there's going to be Lotte department stores in every major city, which has everything you could you could want in South Korea, but also Sports teams take sports teams because here in the United States, yeah, we have companies that own that own the teams, but then what they do is they name like the stadiums after it. So, for example, uh, baseball. If you if you're from Detroit, you go to Comerica Park to Comerica Park to go see the Detroit Tigers. That's not how it works in South Korea. If you live in Busan, you go to Lotte Park to go see the Lotte Giants. Teams are actually associated with the Chable that owns them. They aren't. It's like the, that's the actual name in them. It's not the Busan uh, Giants. It's the Lotte Giants. That's how ubiquitous this these giant family-owned companies are in South Korea, and that was. That was heavily that was heavily generated by Park Jung Hee during his during his reign. But when he was in power, he always focused. It was always a, a as you said, it was a very state focused thing. And that, there's a the co- contrast I see that is you know take the, the United States. Like we know that business, you know, we know the military industrial complex. We know how strongly corporations are interlocked with our military. But I get again, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but the sense I always get from in that is that the military is having various companies basically compete for their contracts and it's them presenting things to them. That's not the way that Pak Chung Hee was doing it. He was directing it top down where he was telling these companies, this is what you're going to work on. And he would even throw like in order to make sure they knew like you're doing what I'm telling you, he would throw these people in prison until the these Chable companies played ball with him. He introduced these five year plans in South Korea and basically have like had a laser focus in terms of what the industries were going to work on based on what he thought would help build up Korean prestige and help them industrialize quickly enough so that instead of allowing this to go down to like, well, let's see what the invisible hand of the market says, he got an eye for like, this is what, what people are going to be buying. Like we're going to focus on this. For example, his, um, his, his heavy chemical industrial plan in the 1970s had five separate fields of electronics, shipbuilding, machinery, petrochemicals, and non-ferrous metals. And he, 
he had the companies focus very heavily on that and building the industries on that so that South Korea would become this place where like everybody would get like everyone would get their specific things from that and that's that's a common thing actually among Koreans like they will hyper focus on one thing like that's why they're they tend to be very good archers to the detriment of everything else they will be very hyper focused and very hyper specialized and you see that under the Park Jong-hee regime well I, th- those industries are what was funny about that to I don't know a libertarian or years is that oh well you know the government can't uh can't instill success you can't pick winners well in korea's case it did all those industries yeah. korea has very strong companies in the case of steel posco is huge uh, in the case of shipbuilding hyundai builds a ton of them uh, in case of electronics everybody should know you know samsung by now uh hyundai is eh, sort of an also ran in, in cars but it was actually not even on the list which is kind of funny uh so he didn't apparently target that uh which surprises me actually um although I guess you do have to focus a little bit, given the Japanese were pretty competitive in all those industries. Uh, and yeah, I mean, go ahead. Well, being able to concentrate capital is what that system, Japan system, and really even the communist systems are oriented towards. And they're really variations of degree, as Borzoi said, not of kind. Uh, you know. In the American case, like the the United States government will loan you enormous sums of money if you're in a politically favored uh, industry. They will make sure that you are able to keep your uh, your submarine uh, dockyards uh, open um, or your airplane factory uh, running smoothly, and it's really you know the the interesting. Uh, thing is kind of the the mechanism and how far deep it goes because my impression is that the south korean government they would kind of dictate the uh dictate some of the uh the goals or the um the sorts of investments of these chables um but they didn't really get into the nitty-gritty of okay but how do you actually uh execute on that um Whereas, yes. of course, like in the communist system, it's like, okay, it's turtles all the way down. You need to make sure that the party is in control of every uh, level of this organization, which means that ultimately the party ends up uh, responding to party incentives rather than uh, the um, sort of production incentives that you have uh, within uh, one of these giant companies where shit rolls downhill and although you might have a set of political priorities at the top level, the immediate way that you get promoted is actually run the steel mill better, not promote the correct uh, ideology. I'm going to yes. speculate here because I don't, I don't know the reason why Park didn't uh, start dictating how many uh, ingots of steel per hour we're rolling out of his favorite steel mill but I, I i speculate that the reason the micromanagement didn't get to that degree is that the chables were trying to protect their interests and their power base as well and i think they had to strike sort of a compromise that uh, many governments like this will will strike with major industrial uh, conglomerates is that look we're going to give you a lot of state support if you play ball and the price of that is that you know you kind of follow our general guidelines, but uh, 
we're going to let you keep your power because we know you, you guys care about your, your legacy and your companies. And so you're going to do a good job. And that seems to be what they did here. Uh, I did read that somewhere because the, uh, the Chables were kind of very skeptical of, of kind of the, the government giving them uh, somewhat uh, specific direction, if not completely specific. Uh, but I think it worked out for them just fine. And you can see the, yes. uh, the results for the country as well, which I think is also very noteworthy. The, the growth rates in Korea, I think, I don't know if China has, I mean, I don't really trust Chinese numbers, first of all, but uh, I, I do know at, at a certain point, Koreans were averaging the highest growth rates in the world uh, per year on, on a GDP basis. Yeah. They, they were not, like 10%. Not only, South, yeah. not only South Korea, but concurrently north korea was also posting growth rates about in, in that same level and in the early this, this era, isn't this yeah. isn't rocket surgery like whenever people point to uh oh my god like how, how can you possibly <laughs> like develop that. an economy from nothing it's like well you have a semi-authoritarian government that ensures access to cheap capital to your foundational industries that let you build out the economies of scale and eventually develop a domestic market. Like, that's how you do it. That's how everybody does it. That's how the United States did it in the 1800s with the sort development of, of things like sort railroads. Of. Railroads, uh, sort of, yeah. yeah. That, that's how, like, all of the, uh, the Asian tigers, quote-unquote, did it. That's how all of the it's communist countries did it Asian in the 1950s. The, the, the communist success was in, in this vein as well. But they had problems by the, by the seventies. the The South Koreans, though, they continued to grow well throughout the eighties, I believe. Oh, yeah. And so a lot like, of it was was catch up. A lot of it was. Just, I'm sorry. Yeah. Once you hit like 1975, then things start to become clearly divergent. Mm -hmm. But when you're in that kind of bootstrapping phase, like it, it all looks almost identical from kind of the the big picture macroeconomic perspective. Yes, yes, it does. Uh, however, I do have to give the the Koreans the credit, and the Japanese were doing the same thing. And and so yes, you're, to your point about the Asian tigers, I agree. But I do think the Asian uh, character is particularly suited for this type of of growth, uh, as opposed to uh, Tanz Tanzania, or Tanzania, however you say it, uh, rolling out uh, giant. Uh, post Panamax uh, vessels. I don't see it. I mean, there, there's just a certain level of human capital that you need and a certain culture and a certain personality such that they're prone to this highly organized, highly repetitive type style work that requires a lot of discipline and education in many cases, in the case of electronics or things like that, uh, that a lot of countries just can't do. Even if you did have the state government that the, uh, Koreans did, or even the Soviets. I mean, you can see the the differences between the uh, the, the communist system of East Germany and uh, Russia because of the differences in people. Uh, the East Germans were the wealthiest uh, part of the communist world, uh, arguably because they had Germans, uh, as opposed to a bunch of uh, surly uh, Tajikistans uh, inside the USSR. Uh, or even Russians. So I, I do think the human capital uh, aspect is very important as well. Oh, absolutely. How, how yeah, much of the uh, well, how much of the Korean industrialization effort was basically led and financed by the United States? 
a good chunk of it. They did get a lot of, of aid. I couldn't give you well, numbers specifically, though. They did have aid. I think this was more on the... In, yes, they got aid, and that was a, a important component in It was that. probably for but weapons, there was a, though. I don't think that they wanted the industrialization. There was some of it in the State Department that saw this as important kind of bulwark against communist agitation. You know, you need to you need to make the people wealthy so they don't want to go communist, and you also need to build up the, the country. But I, I do think it was mostly Korean-driven. Well, and, well, here's the... But, to the question of where did the money come from, obviously some of it came from the United States. Now, I think what I'm about to say was this was fueled more into infrastructure, but because of the close relationship between yeah, state sense. and chables, and that was one of the reasons why that park pursued the policies that he did was it was basically like you can't stop these people from doing what they're going to do. So it's better to do this kind of guided capitalism thing and have the, the aims focused instead of like they're going to corruption has always been a problem in South Korean society to the point that the first like democratically elected president after the dictatorships made his whole thing about trying to remove corruption. It's just like you cannot get rid of it in the society. It's so endemic to the culture he seemed Park Jung-hee seemed to understand that and because he was going kind of because he was not kind of he was going off the Japanese model completely he was completely emulating the Japanese in this he was take what you're what you're dealt with and play it to the best of your ability in order to gain independence because that independent Korean independence was in terms of economic ability was at the forefront of a lot of his thinking but when this is and this is why where the his Japanophilia plays in because you have the thing you have to understand about Koreans is to this day a, a large segment of Korean society has a chip on their shoulders with the Japanese, uh, and this is why Park Jung Hee is interesting because the most extreme type of Korean nationalists are going to not like the fact that he was. He, that he was a, a Chin, uh, Chin Ilpa, that he was this collaborator, that he, uh, and this is actually where the comfort woman thing kind of comes into play. So there's two issues that will rile up the most chauvinistic of South Korean nationalists. One is Dokdo, which is we known as, known as the Lee and Court Rocks. It's just these two who cares rocks that they are arguing with sovereignty over with the Japanese. The other is the comfort women whole issue and the thing is that when south korea and japan signed a normalization treaty and the japanese gave over a bunch of restitution money over like hey sorry we colonized you and and did that stuff here's some money let's never bring it up again and this is why the japanese considered the issue closed when people bring it up well what about the yasukuni shrine stuff they, they always come well there's the other so that's that's what that's incident. Like that's other stuff. Like I, I'm simplifying this stuff uh, quite a bit, but sure, sure. they considered the issue closed because they paid all that money. But you still have people who represent the comfort women who want money. Why do they want money? Because they never got any money. And the reason why they never they never received any money was because when Park Chung Hee received that restitution money from Japan, he figured the stupidest thing you could do is just give it to to the victims the best thing you could do is build the, <laughs> is have a nationalism and build towards the future hey, he's so my he kind of guy that, <laughs> he took that restitution money that they received from the japanese and he completely put it into building and developing korea 
Korean infrastructure was built on the money that the Japanese paid, and it almost certainly went into these into these chables, into these into this state capitalism. This that we, this we'll call it guided capitalism, into this weird guided capitalism that Park Chung was pursuing in order to build up Korea. That's why they were able to rapidly industrialize so quickly because he took all the Park Chung right. took all the capital that they could get from the United States and from Japan and just flushed it in a laser-focused way to build up Korea as quickly as possible so that they could stand economically on their own two feet and move towards an export economy. That's yeah. the main thing of Park Chung-hee's accomplishments is he moved a country that was like number five in terms of third uh, of third worldism of where they let, let, were on the developmental index and he made it into an actual export economy in less than two decades. You mean number five from the bottom. So, uh, yeah, how five from the bottom. How did the chai bowls develop then? Were, so basically they started with what industry, and I guess today they're in multiple industries, namely electronics and shipping, but how did they ship, really ship get building. started? And what was the primary beginning industry for the chai bowls? That's something I've never really been clear on. Was it steel making or was it just sort of... That was what of... Park wanted, but there's... Yeah, go ahead, Borzoi, if you got more detail. I mean, so, they, they were exist in existence, and so I don't think they were in these kind of uh, medium-term, modern-era, uh, 19th-century-style businesses as much. I think that's what he wanted to develop, but I would imagine they were in the retail and farming and merchandising businesses, but Borzoi, yeah. please. Yeah, and they were, they were, this is why uh, this was a big component of of why Park Chung-hee was so eager to seize power. Now, obviously, when you want to seize power, there's always going to be this, there's always a bit of, like, narcissism, sociopathy, and self-edification that goes into this. Yeah. But the corruption of the Syngman Rhee administration is, was a big driving force and is what allowed him to kind of, like, establish a mandate to rule. And it was because of the massive corruption of that administration that's where the Chables derived out of they the they were basically these entrepreneurial elites that had been close to read or any other people that were just kind of in what could be you know the upper class of of this of south of this burgeoning independent south korean uh country i don't know exactly what industries they were they were first focused in but i think you could the way they put it would be like much like how what happened in russia after the fall of the soviet union where you had the um uh what, what do you call them? i'm i'm blanking uh, oligarchs oligarchs yeah you had the old we're basically just like the old, like in, you have a you have essentially a new country and you have a couple of individuals that just snap up every single industry they possibly can that's basically where the table started so South Korea was not really much of an was not an industrialized country right when they had their independence. So anything that could constitute an industry of any kind, that's well, the Chables were involved in that. They were just like that's you had business that was very that was controlled by very by by just a very small group of people by business elites who took up who took what they could in a war torn country that had been completely devastated by being occupied by the Japanese, uh, having to deal with World War II, and then the Korean War shortly after. Like you have to remember, like all this stuff happened in pretty much a short span of time. So, what industry did exist? What businesses did exist? They were snapped up by as few people as possible. Yeah, I, I didn't know that's how the chapel originated. I thought they were going back 
much longer, but you know, I, I have not researched it to be honest. Um, I've just, I've known they've been these, these driving forces of the South Korean, the Republic of Korea are okay since uh, its inception. But, uh, I just wanted to say in addition to the comment that Borzoi made about how Park was like, yeah, we're, we're taking that money and then we're actually going to invest it. We're not just going to fritter it away. I just wanted again to contrast the way the America, the American government doles out money, not the American system of, of financial allocation, which is a completely different thing that that, that one is purely profit driven, but the, the government, um, which spends a lot of money, uh, spends trillions of dollars every year, uh, aside from the military stuff, which you can debate, I guess, suppose, but I, I would just put the, the completely frivolous stuff uh, in contrast with the type of spending and investment in particular that the South Korean regime at the time was doing with the American system. So in America, you'll get this giant settlement against the, the tobacco companies of how much was that? $600 billion or some ridiculous sum. And so these companies are taxing the consumers who are killing themselves to then give the government money to spend on education, I guess, uh, to spend it on welfare, uh, to spend it on really just dysgenic and completely nonsensical things. When you look at the state of the American infrastructure, the, the competitiveness of some of these key industries, which you know we were sort of starting to see finally some acknowledgement in the military uh, and even state department apparatus that were woefully unprepared uh, in case of a supply chain shock like we're experiencing right now with the coronavirus um, the, the koreans have this opposite of approach like no we're, we're going to build our own industries we're going to have this stuff and we're going to take all this all this uh, money that we're getting and actually put it to the future as opposed to the now it's like the people who win the lottery are the least uh, likely to know what to do with that money based on the fact that they played the lottery to begin with, because statistically you're going to lose money every time you play it. And so the fact that you know, the fact that you do that indicates that you are a poor manager of funds and therefore you should not be given a large amount of it. He sort of takes the opposite tack and says like, look, these people were victimized, which is, I guess, unfortunate, but giving them money is not going to fix the fact that they're victimized. So what will help though, is we're going to, build the country. And I, I just like that approach. Yeah. Um, and, and the other thing that I wanted to say was that the, uh, the, the source of the funds that, uh, was asked previously, where did this money come from? Hans was asking, did it come from the United States? Some of it, I think, but, uh, Park's approach was just pragmatic. It's like, we'll take money from anybody. Uh, we'll, we'll take money from, uh, Western Europe. We'll take money from the Americans, take money from the Japanese. We don't care because at the end of the day, it's for us. Why should we have some ideological blockage to that? And the, the last thing that I'm, I'm aware of that he did was it was um, it's a state subsidy uh, for these these key industries, the heavy industries, the chemical industries, the steel making, all that stuff. Um, but how do you do it? What are the mechanics of that? There are various ways of subsidizing things. You could do price controls. You could do direct transfers of money. Uh, you can do tariffs to protect the industries. I think they did that. They, they, they actually placed a, a huge tariff wall around these particular industries. Uh, and so that's a tax on the consumer, if you think of it that way. Uh, so it's, a, it's, it's forcing them to buy 
uh, domestically produced goods in order to protect those industries. Uh, and he did that actually at the expense also of the businesses and the other industry, the non-key industries that he didn't care about in order to get access to those foreign markets. So the, before the WTO, there was, I think it was called the, the GATT, the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs. That was the sort of governing body between, well, quote unquote, governing, but it's just this, uh, group of countries that meet and they sort of talk about how are we going to do uh, trade with each other and the, the idea is to have reciprocal arrangements between the countries so that there, nobody is, is cheating or, or getting uh, an unbalanced uh, deal in order to become a member of that in order to export the steel and the ships that he's having these uh, chable build uh, he allowed the foreign importation of other goods in the non-key sectors like uh, i don't know tennis shoes or something that really just doesn't matter at the end of the day, as opposed to having a functioning uh, steel system where you can actually build infrastructure out of it, hospitals, uh, roads, and all, all that, all that really you know, bridges in particular, but the critical stuff that you really need. He emphasized that at the expense of the frivolous stuff. Uh, and it comes at the expense of the consumer again, and those little businesses. And then finally, the, the, the savings of the Korean people played a key role here is that he, he didn't allow Koreans to withdraw their money. And so if you had a certain amount in there, sorry, the bank needs it for building uh, the 10th uh, rolling mill for the, the integrated steel plant. Uh, so sorry, you can only take 5% of it back. So things like that is how they pulled this off. Because again, it, what's fascinating to me about this is this is an actual like normal country in the sense that they don't have a giant printing press that has no consequences like the United States because of the, the huge monetary base of the American dollar. We can run trade deficits ridiculously for, for years and years, and eventually that, that catches up with you. But um, you can't do that in a small country, and so you have to do these much more fine-grained uh, technical uh, financial moves to actually raise the funds. So that those are the things I'm aware of that they also did. Yeah, there's – the th and this is a lot of this is because uh, Nick was asking in the chat how much his government was modeled on Japanese authoritarianism. It wasn't. He took the lessons of that. He he greatly admired the the Showa uh, era of Japan, which is the one he was born under and the one he served in the military under. He had a great admiration for that. He specifically cited Bushido as a very as a guiding principle he wanted to make sure that the korean people were imbued with and he wanted to kind of reformat this confucianism that permeated korean culture that so that it was we, they could work towards modernization because that was his key driving role was to modernize korea as quickly as possible he took those say he took the lessons that the japanese had taken that we had referenced earlier um and I had referenced, and actually, I even on that on my uh, American Sun essay, I talk about this at length as well. Is that these Asian countries that saw that understood like what happens when you have a technological, an overwhelming and technological industrial power that can tell you what to do, and that and then race now comes into play. That race is now a very real thing when it's something you you barely ever encountered before. The realities of that situation hit you hard and hit you fast. And Park Chung Hee like picked up the lessons that the Japanese picked up. That's why he admired them. That's why he sought to emulate them as much as possible, but on, in it through a Korean lens. And actually, he had, and he took the whole idea of the mean. That's so. There's this idea in 
it's called the they call themselves the mean joke which i can't remember if it, if it literally mean i think it might literally mean my, our blood or it's it can be understood as our nation uh, this has been noted before that Koreans, North and South, have a strong sense of themselves, a strong, a very strong ethnic sense. Uh, despite the fact that race mixing has gone up in in Korea because of their exposure to the, you know, uh, being an open market and exposure to the outside world, there's still a strong sense of themselves. And when uh, during a meeting between North and South Korean generals at one point, uh, sometime in the last 15 years, the North Korean generals had brought up the fact that what's, you know, like in the South, you guys have race miscegenation and race mixing going on and they weren't happy with that. And the South Korean general dismissed it as that it's just a, it's just a drop of ink in the Han river, meaning that they weren't too concerned about the level at the time. They weren't concerned about the level that was that because the way that the Koreans viewed themselves is that their blood is strong and that's a concept that was strongly transmitted to them from the Japanese. And that was a lesson that the Japanese had learned from when they saw when, when they had to deal with Western powers, when they had to deal with race for the first time. The Japanese understood it immediately what that meant that, you know, we are the yellow man. They are the white man. No matter what, there is a difference between us and we have our own struggle to fight. Otherwise, we will fall under their sphere. That's why the Japanese were so intent on building their own empire. And they began trying to transmit this idea as much as possible to other to the other Asian peoples in order to kind of like I mean, obviously, they wanted those people under the Japanese sphere, but they also wanted to imbue them with that sense of racialness. And the Koreans picked up on that. That's where they end up getting the idea of the mean joke. And that's where. Park Chung-hee really pursued that as well as he would begin as after once the industrialization started and the United, and the South Koreans were able to stand on their own feet you begin to see going through towards the end of the 60s things like tensions really start to ramp up on the Korean peninsula again to the point that you almost have the Korean War breaking out again as Park Chung-hee begins trying to move South Korea from this complete dependency on the United States in both economic and military matters and being in being able to hold their own. That was a big component of what he wanted to do. It wasn't just economic independence, but he wanted a military independence as well because he knew that if he did not pursue this, they would always be on a part uh, under the American sphere and subject to what that would mean. And that's why the relationship with Park Chung-hee was always a very tense one with the United States, he was con- he him and his colleagues were in constant conflict with the United States State Department because they did not like a lot of the things that Park Chung Hee was doing. Well, I don't know specifically what they were complaining about, uh, but what I did read uh, one example was that it was, it was he was not part of an elected government. Now, from the America's perspective, I'm like, who gives a f? I mean, I don't. I don't know why that affects the the, the American uh, average guy on the street. I mean, it obviously doesn't. But the I think from the State Department's perspective, and this is my cynicism coming out, but I think they prefer these quote unquote democratically elected governments because they're weak and they can manipulate yes. them. And as opposed to a country that's run by this tough guy, they they can't boss them around as easily. Now I don't I don't know what the real reason is or the, the other reasons or or whatnot, but um, 
that's how I've always or I've started to see most of this stuff. This this we want absolutely d- democratic governments. Well, yeah. you just want the, morons, and, and, you know, running things. Then, <laughs> and you can see this because when the U.S. has an interest in a country remaining stable, like Saudi Arabia or any other country in the Gulf, they're more than happy to praise our our great partners in the region. You know, they buy a lot of our stuff. They're great guys. Just Got spoke great to them orbs. the other day. Yeah. We touched the orb together. I really felt something there. By the way, I learned what Kofefe means. Oh, as, as Ezra Pound said, democracy is a euphemism for a country ruled by Jews. <laughs> well, and well, I, 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 can't places, rem- yeah. I can't remember his name, but uh, I think it was Bergman. I, anyways, the first... Like, the, the ambassador, the United States ambassador to South Korea during this transition period to when Park Chung-hee takes power was a Jew who was opposed to everything that Park Chung-hee was trying to do. And, you know, it's, uh, I think you can, it's, it's pretty easy to kind of begin. Like when you look, look at the things that Park Chung-hee was doing, it start, you start to see why. Like he was seeking more and more independence for the country to be able to operate on um, uh, on their own, he was, he was not in favor of the of the kind of democracy that the United States was in favor of. And really, like if you, like if you want to be, if you want to just get cut to the chase, he was he was basically pursuing a Korean style national socialism for his country. It's really essentially well, what that, he was doing. Isn't that what uh, uh, Dr. Johnson's perspective is on this? I yeah, mean, I've, I've heard him talk about the country in that light, and yeah, he's very admiring of. A lot of a lot of countries, ironically, after the Second World War, you could construe as national socialist. I mean, Yugoslavia was practically a national socialist uh, country. There were a lot of former German officers who were basically uh, had been captured by Tito's rebels and then were given positions within the Yugoslav government in the 50s to help rebuild. They had a lot of contracts and contact with Germans. You know, they them in particular, as well as several South American countries, various countries in Africa, various movements in Europe and Asia definitely, you know, took on that uh, sort of mix of hard nationalism as well as uh, sort of modern economic approaches to solving social issues that the Germans had taken. Um, you know, national socialism sort of didn't really ever have that name again, but certainly a lot of the ideas lived on politically and economically throughout much of the second and third world in the 50s and onwards and even the soviet union to an extent although i know this is like deep revisionism that i don't really like engaging in but certainly the soviet union of the 70s and 80s and uh you know where you could say the 50s onward but the later soviet union is what's much more in line with a national socialist style country than it was a uh, it's early Bolshevik sort of free for all. Brezhnev told Thatcher they had to work; they, they should work together to protect the white race. I mean, that's like right. according you know, to it, Ken, Ken Wow, Kimmar. I missed that one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there there was there was a great deal, I think, of the world. Uh, Argentina is actually a good example under Perón that looked at um, the sort of forces that. Uh, they were contending with and, and if they were going to be a burgeoning new power on the scene uh, and this is very applicable to Korea what do you do 
Well, the thing you definitely shouldn't do is engage in cosmopolitanism and engage in um, sort of uh, you know, this denigration of your own people. You should construct uh, industrial policy that has market characteristics and corporations alongside, you know, deep-rooted cultural values with uh, ethnic supremacy within your own country. And a lot of places ended up doing that to a great amount of success. Um, and, you know, the Asian tigers really could not have achieved the level of success they did without uh, the, those hardline values in the post-war era of what you could easily construe as soft national socialism. My my Taco Bell senses are tingling. I think Nick wants to jump in. Yeah, so I uh, this is jumping ahead both in time and also beyond the scope of this conversation. However, I wonder how it is that you can get from this to what you see in modern Korea, which is probably the model... Uh, colonial cultural outpost of Americanization in the Asian world. <laughs> you assassinate but, the one guy who was trying to stop that. That's how you, that's how you jump from one to the other. Talking about like K-pop? What, what do you Boom. Mean? I am talking about K-pop, Adam. I am actually, yes, that I am talking infestation about infestation upon the planet. Yeah, I've, I've not actually listened to any of it. I've just looked at it and it all looks really boring. I could be completely wrong. But it looks uh, it looks very commercial and fake. Yeah, I don't. Unfortunately, well, much I, of Korea, modern Korea, is commercial and fake. I mean, as I understand, it's the plastic surgery capital yes. of the world. Yes, yes, yes that's yes. accurate. Yeah, they do the eye surgery, uh, but they probably do everything else too. But how much of that is really Americanization? I mean, American. Well, if if Korea is the capital of of plastic surgery, then it doesn't necessarily, I mean, I don't know if that's really due to Americanization or if there's elements of Korean culture that are at play here. Oh, the, I, can, I can actually yeah. explain this yeah. a little bit. Oh, oh, no. Yeah, I'm sure Boise has a hot take here. Let's hear it. So what what it, what it basically is, is this is, and, the, and Nick understands this very well, is that uh, our, our special enemy has a very unique way of taking our own weaknesses, uh, finding our weaknesses and using it against us. You know, taking our, our particular traits and using them against us, much like how you take liberalism and use it against us. Well, Koreans, because of their drive for international prestige and success, like that was what how K-pop essentially developed because you had this large immigrant community that went overseas and because and this this became part of what's called the Hallyu or the Korean wave where uh Korean cold uh, Korean ha Korea had become a strong um industrial export country but they really wanted to become a cultural export country and so they were picking so you have these immigrant communities that are picking up this lesson from los angeles and from the united states they're like you know they're going to you know they're, they're learning from the people who make the who make all the cultural decisions you know in the united states and so in order to bring korea success they basically just import that formula over there and they wait they just find ways to tweak it so that it appeals to a asian audience because k-pop is especially popular in the in 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 the entire asian world it's conquered basically all these asian countries and it's just it's it, it's pop music that is just 
for the, the with the presentation of it all, it just synergizes with their particular cultural taste and they took those lessons that they learned from the United States and applied them to Korea in order to pursue that success. But that's how you got that's how you get they got this foothold into Korean culture because they wanted that prestige and they wanted that success so badly. They wanted to become these these cultural tastemakers around the world. So you have people so, who basically made a bargain. Boston bargain. Yeah. A, a, a similar question. I, I've never been to Korea. I've been elsewhere in Asia. But I watch a lot of Korean cinema, and one thing that I've always found interesting in Korean cinema is where see wearing a Western-style three-piece suit while practicing traditional Korean rituals, observing Korean customs and rituals uh, of an excessively formal nature. Is this how you would explain that? Um, you kind of cut out for me, but basically that they're kind of trying to merge the two together. Yeah, the, the, you see, like you see this contrast. Uh, quite a bit in uh, in South Korea. It's it's actually a lot of things are very commercialized over there, and it's it, this is actually something I talked a bit about uh, with with Adam on the pause button because the the youth are in the midst of what they kind of what they call hell Joe Sun. It's because Korea has become this very hyper capitalist driven country that's becoming increasingly divorced from their traditions. And it becomes the point where you like like your tradition kind of becomes like, well, I go see grandma who wears her hanbok during um, uh, Chuseok, which is the Korean Thanksgiving. It kind of gets to that point. But because a lot of because of the of of how Korea the way it developed, it's always tried to find a way to modernize and have their and hold on to their traditions. It leads to this really weird culture over there at times. Um, like for example, when a common thing like a common gift that you'll get, like you'll you'll buy prepackaged gifts you'll give on holidays, and a very common one is a is spam like boxes of spam because of it's of a holdover from when like that's all you could kind of eat like that was like what you had access to there's a famous uh, dish over there in Korea called budejigae which means army stew which is just a bunch of different ingredients thrown together because of what they could gather spam being one of them but what's happening is over time these traditions are being eroded and it's that consumerist capitalist culture that is overtaking it now koreans because they have that ethnic sense of self are desperately trying to hold on to the past but because it's increasingly hard to do so since they're expected to perform they're expected to succeed they're having to choose do you want tradition or do you want success on yeah. on a global and national so, scale and they're being forced to choose success right and and to this i would also ask how much of this how much of this mentality is informed by sort of a, a faustian bargain uh, based on korean butthurt about their lack of any historical power 100 percent. The, the historical legacy of korea being uh, Hundred percent. Okay. One hundred percent. It's I, I I because historically, Korea has either been under the Chinese or the Japanese in, uh, sphere of influence, and then it became under the American sphere of influence. And that's actually why Park Chung Hee stands out so uniquely is that he he tried so hard to uh, give Koreans a chance 
to basically determine their own destiny. A country that, you know, in the grand scheme of things, had no chance to achieve, to pursue their own destiny. When your physical neighbor is China and your sea neighbor is Japan, you have no chance to basically succeed on your own. He tried to give Koreans a chance to do that, but ultimately they made a Faustian bargain where because like we want to matter, we want to be important people, we want to be the people who can drive world events. They took whatever they could get, and they're going. And that's why they they're so obsessed with emulating whoever is successful and copying everything they do without knowing understanding the content of what they're copying, just to achieve that, just so that they can say like we are we are the best, we are number one. Koreans can be very chauvinistic when it comes to that regard. I think the expression is, is a, a shrimp quiet. in a sea of whales. They have some yeah. expression like that. What are we gonna say, Nick? Well, is this why Americanism is less dirty than any any kind of to them than any kind of influence of the uh, Japanese and Chinese uh, historical power? Oh. Because Americanism is somehow associated with their rise to uh, their something what you, resembling independence. What do you mean by Americanism exactly? In this context, what exactly do you mean by him? Well, by the, I mean, the, the I don't know, for example, the veneration of people like MacArthur or, uh, you know, pro-American sentiment. Uh, well, I, well, a pro-American sentiment is isn't a pro-American sentiment is weird in, in contemporary South Korea because you, there is a, there actually is a very strong anti-American sentiment. In it was the actually, youth. If you talk to the older guys, I've, I've sat on planes yeah. to talk to older Koreans. They they fucking can't stand the younger kids because they they feel like they're ungrateful for because they don't they didn't experience the war and uh i i think that's going to fade as these older guys die but yeah it's it's the anti-americanism is from the younger generation from what i can yeah and and there was a huge it was at its height in the early 2000s as a result of iraq war bush um what it had and military presence in south korea because some some american soldiers ran over a couple of middle school girls and this was going on concurrent with uh, Apollo Ono, who was you know a ha- uh, half Japanese, half American skater, whom the Koreans believe cheated to win the gold at the Winter Olympics. Uh, Koreans are are incredibly petty about a number of things. They they combine real grievances with the most with the pettiest yeah, grievances. Yeah, the funny possible. thing is, I never heard of Apollo Ono. No one cares. They they tried to kill him. Like they <laughs> oh, they geez. rioted against. Do not remember that man? Yeah. yeah. No. No, I've actually, uh, sadly, because I used to really, I mean, I, I've just become too cynical probably, but I, I used to view the, the Olympics as kind of this like hopeful thing about humanity, and now I just view it as a waste of money. But uh, no, I kind of stopped following that stuff. The, the Winter Olympics is the one sporting event I watch. Yeah, yeah. and the Koreans are are like pride, like again, going to like they, they hyper-specialize. So what they specialized there was speed skating. So and what happened was basically the two the two Korean skaters knocked themselves out, allowing Apollo Ono to well, skate how, on to victory. How is that Apollo's fault? Oh, well, he's also half Japanese, which evoked a racial hatred in them as well. Okay, but but where was it his his fault? I, you're asking me to rationalize a Korean emotional response, which I'm not going to be able okay, to do. All right, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> but they, there was a high degree of. Um, of this uh, anti-Americanism that rose. In fact, actually, Cy 
came under fire the Gangnam style rapper. He Ugh. actually came under he actually came well, he came under fire shortly after that became a hit because some things uh, uh came back where he did this anti-American verse in a rap that he did with like a punk band or something. And the thing is like the media ran cover for him because first of all, I and I, I know we talked about this on, on my show, probably, Adam, but the, the, sl- the slur for that they use for us is Kojangi, which people who are running cover are going to try and tell you it means like fucking Westerner, fucking Yankee. It means big nose. It's a racial. Ter- it's it's it, it is fucking a racial Westerners. <laughs> what do they mean by this? I uh, know they're not. No, they're not they that way. That. Like, <laughs> they're, 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 <laughs> no. No, I, I explain this as well on my show. Is like, the North see Korean the imagery of the average U.S. soldier on their really horribly painted uh, war propaganda portrays American soldiers as having pointy noses. Now, as far as I know, not too many Jews were actual soldiers in the Korean conflict, if let alone any other conflict. But, you, well, um, okay, you so want to know why view, I mean, they view they, they do that the, the, because the Koreans, they, they, they view kind of the wasp have, have holes in their faces. Yeah, they view the waspy kind of sharp uh, nose of the 1950s, as, which was in the last time they actually encountered Americans, as you know something so drastically different from their own. So they exaggerate the features yeah. of about Americans yeah. that are drastically right. different. From Asians their have own. broad noses. That's right. Yeah. Right. Like so, it's. I don't know. I don't know if it's necessarily have, like have a ever Jewish been... thing. I don't know. Like if North Koreans really. Or Koreans in general have any wherewithal or opinions about kind of Zionism and Zionism in America the way that like Arabs do. But no, they, they tend to want to the, the ones who are actually Jew aware tend to want to emulate Jews because they right. see them as successful. I think I think that a lot of the the imagery of Americans that involves like there's always the imagery of Americans from Koreans that involves like Negro lips and. That's yes. a very that's very obvious. Like it's very obvious they're trying to portray you know Americans as black or African monkeys. But some of the stuff that they portray, it'll like it'll have like these deep like glacier blue eyes with the big nose and like the like the comb over blonde hair and like in a weird shape like that. They view they have like an exaggerated view of 1950s GIs. And yes, that's how they think Americans look today. Yeah, it's, it's very and, peculiar. And so that 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 term Kojangi is like, means big nose. And that and that just to kind of quickly finish my thing about Psy, that verse that he rapped about it, it's full. It, it is a it is a racial. It is a very racial verse. Like he talk he he raps about violently killing and raping American uh, uh, American wives and daughters, the, the wives and daughters of soldiers. Yeah, no, like the, the media ran cover for him, but if you actually, like, if you actually translate it, if you Why? get, like, they, just because, like, that, like, American, because, like, the whole, we were talking but about anti-American. What is his fucking gripe? I mean, like, first of all, I never watched that stupid video, mainly because it was the most popular video at the time, and I was like, no. Um... If if everybody's watching it, that means it's probably horrible. But uh, sorry to be a snob about this sort of thing. But I've never seen it. I don't know anything about this guy other than I've seen pictures. And he looks like basically a, a very uh, pampered urbanite. I mean, unless he's got some story where his family was murdered or something by Americans. I mean, what what justification? Like, what on what planet would it's, he have such a, an well, obscene thing to say about Americans? 
Koreans are very are very violent in that regard. Like you should see, like if you think they like that's bad, like you should see what they say about Japanese people. But it's well, like they, 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 they occupy yeah. them. Well, know. they have they have this history of. There's been a number. Just it, actually, the way to you know how the Okinawans are with the with the American soldiers. That's kind of how the yeah. Koreans are with the with the American soldiers as well. That's where like that's where a lot of the anti-Americanism comes Cause that, from. Is because that girl got run over? Okay. That, well, two middle school girls, and also it's just oh, like oh. and all the rapes. Okay. Well, there's there's an interesting. I'm not defending that, but about, I mean, all Americans don't do that, you know. Well, I think that there's an interesting element here about North Asians that you need to consider. Most North Asian ethnicities throughout history have basically been nobodies. There's a few that managed to do some really important things. Mongols, Khitans, yeah, Manchur, Manchus, a few that actually pulled off something important. The rest of them are basically literal who's. And there's this element within Russian society that is sort of similar to the Korean relationship to America in that uh, a lot of uh, Yakuts and, and Buryats and Eastern Oriental Russians uh, view Russia as like this, uh, or Russians as these horrific sort of oppressors, and you know, there's there's all kinds of like uh, ethnic rap music in Russia. You mean like European Russians? Yeah, 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 yeah. Slavic Russians. There's yeah. all this like rap music from Yakuts and other regions of Eastern Russia that is is all is basically the same thing it's rapping about like killing russians in the street of moscow like gangbang shit it, it, that's all it's about and there's this element of i think north asians especially koreans have an inferiority complex kind of what nick said earlier because they've literally never done anything i mean the, the 20th century yeah is it is kind of a culturally dry country well, is the first the century where they've actually mattered well, and to give you an extent of how far that inferiority complex goes, like their uh, stereotype of Koreans is that they'll claim to have invented everything. They'll try to, they'll, like, they will go above and beyond to find whatever questionable historical source they can possibly, that they, either that they can find or they can just make up that shows like, well, Korea did it first. They, they will, they will argue until they're blue in the face that they invented the printing press before anybody else did. It reminds me of that documentary where Louis Thoreau went and interviewed like those like black Israelite guys, and he's like, "Was Shakespeare black?" And the black guy's like, "Undoubtedly black, my man. Undoubtedly black." And you know, it's it's this it's obviously ridiculous, and you're kind of like sitting there laughing, um, but then you realize how pervasive this shit is inside the black community. Like if you talk to blacks. Just every day, even guys who are doing well in their job and life comparatively, this is these are things they believe. They believe that all of history has been manipulated to hide the fact that there was this global glut of black geniuses. Some of them do. I mean, I don't know uh, what percentages, but uh, Matt, you it's it's a it's well a the massive okay chunk so of them do and it, it, there's a massive chunk of Koreans who also you know believe that they are like this um, destined to rule the world type people who've just been oppressed forever. Yeah. And it's all cope. It's to cope with the fact they never pulled anything off. I mean, if you want to look at a people that actually pulled something off and are now just sort of content with their legacy, just look at Mongols. 
Mongols don't have any sort of real chauvinism complex. They don't have like a irredentism complex. The Mongols basically became a nation of Buddhists after a nation of butchers. And they were sort of they're sort of content to this day with they're, the legacy yeah. of having conquered a huge chunk of the planet. That's an interesting example. They're, they were communists, by the way, so the, for a spell too. But go ahead. The Korean equivalent of the we was Kangs in this case, it's like we was a state. Was if you watch in Korean cinema, you'll see all these uh, really fantastical films set in the Chosun dynasty. Right? <laughs> yeah. And it, yes. The whole. The whole thing is just a massive fucking cope yeah i used to i mean there was there was this element of korean um uh korean genealogy theory that had to do with this notion that the japanese are actually koreans and that this was somehow widely accepted in japan at some point and then the japanese well they had to come from somewhere korea is right there to accept it i mean even if it is true, like that, it, it is, it's part of this Korean. It's actually idea. true. It's probably true. Yeah, but but it's part it. of this wider it, Korean. It, notion it is probably that, true. the the i the Ainu people were likely from the peninsula. Like okay. that, that is probably here, here's my point. Here's my point. It's part of this wider Korean notion that they are responsible for the successes of the people that routinely bullied them. And now, you know, now that Korea is actually important, I don't think that ideologically they understand how to grasp that and how to, you know, run a civilization sort of modestly. So you see Korea engaging a lot in the plastic surgery complex, in the pet economy, in sort of weird consumerist behavior, in e-gaming and oh, what yeah. I was kind of dis- what I was kind of disputing earlier was that this was an- this was America's fault or this is Americanization. I don't I don't really think it's that at all. I think this is a deeply Korean yes. cultural value that emphasizes um, engaging in modern delights because this is the first time throughout all of history that Korea has actually had access to the modern delights of the era and. and- they they go way overboard on it. They, they they've never actually had a chance to use it. So when they do have it introduced, they f- want to learn how to make it so they can make it for themselves. And then they don't stop making it. They don't stop using it. It's an interesting it's, example. They had a credit card crisis about uh, ten fifteen years ago, and right. I would never associate Asians for being spendthrifts, um, but apparently the Koreans are. Oh, they are. Oh, they, they they definitely are. It's um, it's a weird. You'll you'll see like when you go to these. Uh, so one of the things that Park Jung Hee actually did, uh, one of his initiatives was the new. I believe it was called the New Village uh, Initiative, or it was like the New Village Project, and that's where you end up like with these uh, small farm towns that turned into actual like uh, industrial cities overnight. But you end up with this really weird contrast where you'll you'll have these old towns and like you you'll be able to like see like you can get a 
you'll get you, you can feel the history when you go to the to the underdeveloped parts of it uh but because these things were basically put up overnight like the buildings are really they're all uniform they're very tacky they clash horribly with the korean countryside and they tend they generally tend to be like lar- there's a lot of large ac- par- apartment complexes in that regard and you'll see the lifestyles that these people live in these in, in when their parent, when their grandparents were literally just subsistence farmers, like you know, like it's you see this weird contrast over there, and so they will run credit on that kind of stuff. There's a lot of conspicuous consumption over there, and part of that, it, it, that's why you see this conflict as well between the older generations and the younger generations, and why the older generations still love Pak uh, Pak Hee. And the younger generations have no connection to that because the older generations are th- not only thankful to Pak Chung Hee for the way that he industrialized the country, but he he was teaching the Koreans how to be better Koreans in the way that they viewed it. And that's the way I mean, and that is the way that Pak Chung Hee viewed it. He mm-hmm. believed he was basically reconstituting the Korean people because they never had a chance to determine their own destiny. But when when he was cut down. There was nobody to take up the reins on that. There was nobody that was able, who had the vision that he had to guide the Korean people to any kind of being a responsible people. Well, if anyone has actually taken on the legacy of that ideology, it's been the North Koreans. The North Koreans, I think, outside of maybe the economic structure that this man had desired for Korea, uh, the North Koreans entire philosophy is really built around countering what they see as the failings of the South. And, you know, you can say whatever you want about an ideology that's built on countering another ideology. Often they don't do well long term, but you can at least see why it exists. It exists because the Koreans in the North, uh, especially the leadership, is deeply disturbed by the Koreans in the South and there. You're being very generous, but I, I understand what you're saying in theory. I mean, yeah, yeah I mean, they, they are, they at least try to create a, a revanchist Korean culture. You know, it's the same thing that Ceausescu did in Romania. Ceausescu looked at Romania and he said, there's actually real history here, and it's interesting, and there's a, we have a real people here. It's sort of diffused and, and weird, but let's try and revive that. So there was that whole history of Ceausescu's uh, Romanian sort of revanchism in the 70s that kind of redefined Romanian culture and what the history of Romania really is. Uh, and it was maybe useful long term because Romanians, even despite kind of going through communism, have an actual national identity. And prior to that, it was sort of a mishmash kingdom that didn't really make sense and was full of these various civil wars and civil conflicts. Um, and you can see why the North Koreans are acting the way that they do. And that you know, they see this, the, the, the nature of the Korean is to look at the world and say, ah, finally I can get something that I've never had and I can abuse the shit out of it. And they want to control that temper and actually try and retain a real sense of Korean culture that you can, I mean, it might seem forced and cringe and, and obviously very weird, but at least they're trying to retain a sense of culture. 
to, to what Hans is saying, uh, it's a question, but I'm curious, Borzoi, in the event of reunification, which element do you think will per end up prevailing? Will the North be reintroducing some kind of Asiatic vitalism and return to tradition on the peninsula, or will they succumb to the superfluous consumerism that is uh, popular in the South? Oh, they'll be reduced to superfluous consumerism, short yeah. unless like you have a collapse of like the economic order. Because the it's thing is, you have to pattern. understand the thing. Like the thing you have to understand is that there's there within our kind of milieu, there's often a grass is greener kind of perspective on North Korea, and I I understand and agree that there. I don't like, want to live there. I there's there's a lot of propaganda that comes out about the North, but the thing is like all you need to do is look at the way the people who live well there act. And there's, it's not for nothing that Kim Jong that we have to remember. Kim Jong Un was the third son of Kim Jong Il. He was not the stated successor. What happened to the previous two? Well, the first one got he, was a he, third, the first one was a spendthrift, a spoiled child who got arrested sneaking into Tokyo Disneyland. Oh, I remember second, that guy. <laughs> the, the second one, that's the one that Kim Jong Un assassinated. The second one was that was considered to be f too fruity to be able to take up the reins. That's funny. And so Jong Un himself was, was like the world's largest individual importer of cognac. Or is that yeah. Kim Jong Il, the the father to the current one? Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah I'm was, sorry. Yeah, that yeah, is. He like, also had the world's largest movie collection. But don't forget, Kim Jong Un brought Dennis Rodman over because he was a fan of the of the <laughs> of the Chicago Bulls. So, yeah, that so was like, good, like, yeah. like we we have a ten like the, our mil I've seen this a lot. Our milieu has a tendency to over romanticize uh, North Korea because they're so wary of Western propaganda about it. But you have to avoid this grass is greener perspective on there, be able to take I, things. I should. I I feel for again from watching Korean cinema, I feel that the Koreans themselves do this because often North Korean characters are portrayed as being you know hard men who have no time for you know frivolities etc. And that they 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 almost they they secretly you may say idolize them in some way. Well, it's in, because the, 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 the Koreans have a logical version of them. Yeah, Korean, the Koreans have a unique position of they're able to have like this um, this road not taken perspective on their own race because they Koreans have a because they have this idea of the minjok, our nation, they have a strong sense of themselves even if it's being eroded currently by the by this financial capitalist order. So, but they have. And a neighbor next door that they don't understand very well, that they have very little information on, that they don't get to interact with, and because there's not enough information that allows you to read into it everything you want, there's you, you can they can look at the North and see this as a road not taking kind of thing, and allows you to kind of think about what might have been, especially if you feel the sense of like well of what of hell, Joe's son, like that this society sucks so much, like what. What would it have been like if we had been like them? That's they're the the South Koreans That's are undergoing a lot of the a lot of the ma the melees that we're undergoing, but because they have a racial sense and because they have a counterexample that they can fantasize about, it allows them to play with those fantasies. But you know, mm. reality is always mm. different from than the fantasy. One of the things you very, said before, very interesting. There have well. 
uh, Adam, uh, say what you have to say. I would like, though, that Borzoi at some point uh, get into the little bit of specifics regarding the assassination. Yes. Yes, I've been, I've, I've been champing at the bit for that. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just have some general questions about the Korean people. One I've observed, and I think I have the answer for, uh, but I, another one I, I don't quite understand. So the first one that you did mention, I think, is, is fairly well understood and explained, is the obsession with success in Korea, I think, drives the... I, I, I there, there was that meme about 10 years ago or something about, like, the Asian dad, and he's, like, frowning at his, like, kids, like, are you a doctor yet? No, come back later, you know? Like... <clears throat> I feel like that's that's just Asia writ large and in Korea yeah. probably times a certain positive number. That's uh, Confucianism that, as well. Confucianism yeah. was was always more prevalent so, in Korean culture than in other places. So you see this phenomenon of the already successful getting access to more success. So the Che Bowl, for example, um, are going to get the best talent applying to them because the the family feels good if their son gets a job at Samsung versus some like dopey little startup that is trying to destroy Samsung. Well, you have no chance, you know, that's stupid. Don't do that. Go join Samsung, make us proud, even though you're going to be employee number 1,700,000. But um, that's how they think. And so that, that just feeds upon like the perpetuation of current power structures. Uh, and then it also feeds into the, the fact that Seoul the capital and commercial capital of just about everything in Korea is just growing by leaps and bounds. And then you have these like tiny little farming villages that are probably emptying out. I know you have Busan on the Southeast and the other side, but uh, it's, um, it's like the those Seoul, are the only two cities I know. And the that, Seoul I, metropolitan yeah. area, like if you, like it, I don't think it's strictly the city itself, but like the Seoul metropolitan area constitutes 25% of the population of South Korea. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a pretty no- large number for a um, country of, what, 50 million or something? Um, yeah, I don't remember the exact number. And Busan's the second largest uh, city. Now, in your city, like, the, the most the, the most rural provinces of, of South Korea are uh, the Chungcheong, pro- the two Chungcheong provinces on the west side and the Gangwon province on the, on the east side. And they've actually, like, created a new capital city. Hmm. Like, well, like a government city called uh sejong city in the chuchung region like this is like they're kind of like trying to continue this whole idea of like basically let's take let's take this mountainous uh country that had that has been largely rural and let's just get rid of all the rural areas <laughs> let's just let, let's just turn them all into cities and that's that's kind of what they're the, the project they're still yeah uh, the, the south korean government from what i understand is actually trying to combat the I don't know what you call it. It's it's more than a critical mass. It's like the gravitational pull of Seoul. They're trying to combat the over-concentration and disperse some of that throughout the rest of the country. And, and I, this is probably in accordance with that. That uh, was part that was part of the reason for, like and other was was uh graft, but that was part oh. of the of, of the reason for okay. Sejong City. But what what I what I'm not clear on, uh, and this is my second question or point is you have this sort of uh, group uh, phenomenon you you see manifesting in this chable and, and uh, population concentration in cities like Seoul and Busan, but then at the, the same time, which I've always found very un-Asian or at least un-Northeast Asian, 
because uh, the Japanese don't do this. Um, but the Koreans strike a lot. And the Japanese, just to give you a point of contrast, um, they've, they've been in, in sort of an economic uh, slumber for 25 years or plus. Uh, and they, they've gotten to the point where their workers, because they have kind of this Bushido mentality of being loyal to the company, even above your family, like the, the wives will, will scold their husbands for coming home too early if they think that they weren't doing their due diligence at the company. Um, but they, um, the Japanese have gotten to the point where they'll actually volunteer, like their unions, like they'll voluntarily take pay cuts, not demand raises, but they'll take pay cuts because it's for the good of the company. Now, if you ask me, like that's like, you know, wise because if the company needs it, then then that's fine. And the, the, the other thing I like about the Japanese is that their uh, executives don't get, don't get paid obscene amounts. Like the, the ratio of income for the CEO to the lowest worker is something maybe like 20 to one uh, versus America where it's like a 300 to one or some ridiculous number. Um, so they're much more modest in that sense and much more group oriented over there. But in Korea, like these guys, like I, I've for years, I've just seen like news clippings of just these guys like going out with these big banners and screaming and yelling. And I don't know if they've captured executives, but that's probably happened at some point. That would never happen in Japan. Um, well, and they're right next to each other. So what is going on there? Why do they? So there, yeah. so there's three different things I, I have to discuss here. Um, Nobody cap like like the whole like putting the for the most part uh, corruptions like uh, become even worse in the country like because you don't that's why Park Chung Hee was so integral and so necessary to the country was because he was willing to ba- to you know crack skulls like that's why like he had to bring the stuff into order when you don't have that what right. ends up happening is that, that you sense. have this chable corruption culture that gets out of control but in terms of what you're talking about with the, with the rioting and the protesting. Um, there's a couple, there's a lot of reasons. I, one of the, I, I think it just might be partially because I think it's just the, it's a racial thing and they're alcoholics. <laughs> the thing is, is that, and I think, really? that actually, I, I think that does play a huge component in just like, because the, the, the Irish biggest, contra- of, of the biggest, co- yeah, they are the Irishmen of, of the Asians because there's a huge contrast between the Koreans because the Koreans and the Japanese are probably more closely related to each other um, than than they would be to Chinese, most other people, okay. except and maybe the Chinese, but they uh, the Koreans are are heavy, are much 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 heavier drinkers than the Japanese to the point that seeing people passed out, just like literally just passed out on the street, common occurrence in Korea. You just step over them and you go about your day. Um, maybe you, you help. Maybe you take those, their you, shoes off. You see off. that in Tokyo. Yeah, they do that in Japan, but uh, I don't know to what degree. It's, it's not different. the same. It's yeah. not to the same extent in Korea. And I'll, in one, and I'll, like for example, because of the way the Japanese are, like if you have one drink and you drive, you're over the you're you're all you're under the influence. You will be arrested for drinking and driving. They don't have that. They don't. It's not as strict in in Korea because well, they're all if they were if, if they mm-hmm. if they were to do that, they'd have to arrest basically half the country That's in funny. Korea. It's the, the just they like if you Asian look at action, flush? I mean, yes, are they, they as lightweight as yeah. Japanese are? Because oh yeah, no, it's um. Yeah, okay, but, but no, I, dude, I, I have many stories about this. If oh, they're God. such lightweights, though, why are they so interested in alcohol? I mean, you know, I'm, I I'm know. no, I'm no heavyweight, but I mean, I can have a couple beers, but because like, I, I don't it works. like to overdrink because I get yeah, you know, hungover. So, what what works? 
They have, they have, they're overworked and they have a drinking culture is, is what it boils but down to. Does it depressant? It works. It's an effective depressant. And if there are things in your life that you don't want to drink, this is an effective way of addressing them. <laughs> okay. But I, I, I think it's because it's hard to pinpoint one reason why they're rioting, protesting type people. You've I think, noticed that too. It's not, it's not just. No, I know. I know. It's like it's well known. Like yeah. I, I, have a, I have a funny like little thing here. I, I'm just trying to, I'm building a little bit towards it. So they also have what's called, they're, they're a Bali Bali culture, especially in the, in the Southeast, the Busan area. Bali means hurry, hurry, hurry. They're a very hurry, hurry mm-hmm. culture. Mm-hmm. And that's why like there, there's a tendency toward like why there's also a stereotype of like kind of Korean negligence. On a lot of things, because it's just more important that you get it done. And yeah, it's getting like it well, well, it's more important to show up at eight o'clock than it is to actually solve the uh, the yes the, the rattling bolt that's going to fall out of the hull of the ship, kind of thing. Uh, you and just have to make appearances because they were an occupied people who have never really and they unlike like, unlike the Japanese when they um when they did their modernization, when the Japanese did their modernization, they had more of a plan and idea of how they were going to do it. They, they would, they tend to be much more meticulous about the reforms. Koreans fell under the Japanese sphere of influence and tried to institute some themselves under the Japanese influence. And then later it was kind of imposed upon them by the Japanese. It's why that they've never really learned how to do it themselves so they've always been kind of like a rabble just like they, they've been kind of a rabble amount of people and it's always been like somebody like who's been like under who was like a, Jap- a japanophile like Park Jung-hee would have to be the one that ends up guiding them in like this is like we have to create Korean people kind of thing so um so I, I don't know the precise reason why they uh, but they they're all there are people who who have a lot of complaints and there are people who are not shy about voicing them because i guess because they just don't have that same kind of polite culture that the japanese do so they're very prone to rioting and they're very prone to protesting and because of the of the way that the korean governments have constantly cycled in and out between ineffective democracies and strongmen uh, governments they do not unlike the japanese who have respect for their police officers koreans have no respect for their police officers and they will beat the <laughs> crap out of police officers quite frequently when when tensions the get police high. in actually, japan have gonna, so little to do that I, they're, I, like go ahead well i i have to jump in with i mean again and I haven't been to the country. I watched a lot of their fucking movies, though. And it is a common in Korean films about inept, corrupt... Yes, corruption's a big problem. You know, uh, just moronic police. Like, yes. there, there is no respect at all shown to, to, their, to their version of the fuzz. Yeah, they have no respect for them. Which, corruption. Which I might add, I might add, as it should be. <laughs> so, in a lot, at least once... Korean governments have been toppled because the police fired on uh, because the police killed somebody who was like in in this conflict between the people and the police. And I think that, I think that's also a consequence. They really are the Irishmen of Asia, then. Yes. Huh? Yeah, and I think a part. I think the the reason is the same. Much like how because the Irish were being policed by the British, and like that, just like old habits die hard. It's you know the Koreans were policed by the Japanese, and that like there was no like no organic respect for police was ever formed by the Koreans when they or achieved they independence. Were police, or or they were policed by, 
by Korean lackeys of the Japanese. Yeah, and, that, and that's actually where the chable started as well. It was like basically when the because uh, I, I I I said they kind of came about under the Sigmund Rhee administration. It's because they it was basically like, they were the people who were able to get the assets that were left behind by the Japanese. Like that's that's who like that's why and one reason why corruption was so large over there is that it was just like it, they were just kind of given independence. There was no it was not formalized in any kind of like planned way it was just whoever could grab the spoils first so it's always been kind of that way so the common people like it's there was never like a top-down like we are going to build and until Pak Chung-hee there was no top-down like we're going to build a nation for the people was kind of every man for himself so they don't have that kind of respect for authority and this is something you and I talked about Adam on my episode where because and the, because they've cycled through so many governments and like Koreans don't have this kind of civic patriotism that other countries do where there's a, a stronger sense of continuation in governments in that that the government is supposed to be acting on behalf of the people the Koreans don't have that in in, in that kind of sense because they've cycled through so many governments and they've had so many conflicts with their governments. So there are people that are constantly complaining about something that are constantly mad about something. They're, they're basically a chauvinistic people without a nationalist government. And so that comes out a lot. And, and you'll see very weird protests. A lot of them will protest over the most ridiculous things like that Dokdo issue I referred to. You'll see a lot of, like they, they get so mad about two rocks in the middle of the sea, in the middle of the sea that the Japanese just happen to also claim. They get so, so mad about that. And some of the protests I've, like, I've seen, like there was a man who protested by covering himself in bees. That'll show him. <laughs> Like this is like that's just how they are. They're they are they are they are a rabble rousing people because there are people who have felt like that their needs have never been addressed, and there are people who who believe that their time has come. But like they're standing here now. They're standing in this country that's become a first world country, and it's like, is this it? Is like, have we actually like achieved what we wanted to achieve? Is this like, is this what it means to be on top? It feels it's like for many of them, it's an empty victory. And that's why you're having the soul searching going on it's right like now. Living for centuries under a foreign boot will distort the spirit in uh, unfortunate ways. Yeah. And Pak Chung Hee was kind of the only guy I think who really got it. And it's not he's not a guy he's a guy who's not without his own flaws. And his the way he dealt with the Yushin Constitution era, the 1970s era of South Korea helped kind of lead to his downfall because he he created the opening that his enemies needed basically to hit him at a moment of weakness yeah that's kind of build, I, guess, what I, I guess i was let's, wondering yeah let, let's so, bring it to, to the close so let me build yeah, this let me build a timeline let's do here. let's do so let me build the timeline here 1961 pak chung-hee uh comes into power and he begins these five-year plans to build up uh korea He's got his first economic development plan in 1962, um, and I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty details. But like he, like he, these are like we refer to him as a strongman. But he actually won elections and the like. And so, 1963 is the commencement of the Third Republic. In 1967, he abolishes the two-term limit for the presidency. The 19, 1970s, when he starts the New Village Movement. Now, between these time periods, 1968 is a very important year because this is when things start to heat up in South Korea to the point that the Korean War 
like almost goes hot again. It might as well have been hot because of these of the skirmishes that were going on. But in the year 1968, you have the USS Pueblo incident where the uh, where the Korean where the North Koreans uh, come and took control of uh, of a U.S. intelligence naval vessel and captured many of our soldiers. You had the Blue House raid by the North Koreans where they infiltrated South Korea and almost like they got within hun- a couple hundred feet of the Blue House to assassinate Park Chung-hee. You have the um, you have tunnels being built in under under the DMZ that are being discovered by the South Koreans because the North Koreans were planning to invade again. And you have at, at this you have Park Chung-hee sending he had previously sent troops to Vietnam to help fight in the Vietnam War. A lot of people aren't aware of this, but the country that had the second largest presence uh, in the Vietnam War was South Korea. And a lot of this was to win favor with the with the United States. A lot of it was also Park Chung-hee trying to show that the South Koreans could be independent. And because that that was always his that was always the thing he was working towards. He did not want South Korea completely dependent on the United States. And this became even more clear when Nixon came into power and Nixon began to pursue the Guam doctrine where it's where he told the world, we are not going to fight in every single one of your conflicts. Like we are going to be picking and choosing our battles much more carefully in the future. So Pak Chung-hee realized- <sighs> Makes me like, miss him even more. Sorry, God. Yeah. So Pak Chung-hee realizes that I have to, like, I miss what, him too, man. That's and that's when yeah. Park Chung Hee started started making more overtures to the North Koreans because he was a because when you break it down, Park Chung Hee wasn't was wasn't that different from the North Koreans. He just didn't have the cult of personality, and he was a willing to allow the Chables to operate the businesses how they want as long as they did under his direction. And, like, but. It was a very much he shared that sense of because Juche means self-reliance. He shared that sense of self-reliance that the North Koreans had. So he starts making these um, he starts making cool. He starts improving relations with North Korea. Unfortunately, they didn't come to anything, but it helped starts laying the groundwork for more talks towards reunification. Well, he gets elected in 1971 in a very, very narrow election. Uh, he narrowly beat Kim Dae-jung, who would later go on to be president of South Korea in 2000. But Kim Dae-jung would go on to win the Nobel Peace Prize because he, he's called the Wait, uh, the Nelson Mandela took him of 30 Korea. years to get elected to office? How is this would, guy still alive or functioning? He, well, he, he was very old when he was elected. Wow. Okay. Um, and, and he was a younger man when when he ran in, the, in 1971. He lost the election he was later kidnapped by the Park Chung-hee by Park Chung-hee in 1973 and was made into a political prisoner and uh that it's not during this time period that the Yushin constitution is put into place where Park Chung-hee starts reformatting the entire government he's gotten there's much more this is this is what can be more seen as the strongman period of South Korea and he makes his biggest mistake in 1971 by appointing Kim Jae-gyu as the head of the Korean Central Intelligence Agency. Previously, it had been his, it had been Kim Jong-pil who had been his ally, the man who helped 
solidify his power when he first came into power in 1961. But Kim Jong-il had moved on by that period to go in the key had he was bouncing around different political posts by that point. He was no longer in charge of the Korean Central Intelligence Agency. So he appoints Kim Jae-gyu to be in this position. And by 1972, the uh, he ends the Third Republic with his, the, what's called the Yushin coup d'etat. He ratifies the Yushin constitution as well. And this is when things really start to heat up for for Park Chung-hee in terms of like this is where they try it begins that they begin to start taking him down. First, there's an attempted assassination in 1974 that he survived, but they killed his wife. And in very Park Chung-hee fashion, while she's dying, this happened in the theater and he was supposed to be giving a speech while she's dying. He finishes his speech. Jeez. Just the kind of that's still yeah, just cold. The kind of, yeah, <laughs> but so here's I, I don't know, man. I, I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. Yeah, mixed so, feelings. <laughs> yeah, no, that's and that's yeah. So nineteen by nineteen seventy nine. So this is kind of how it's the story is more generally known by. So Kim Jae-gyu, the head of the Korean Central Intelligence Agency, is not happy with the repression that's going on under the Park Chung-hee. Uh, administration you, you have more people like ostensibly people are constantly rioting and wanting their personal freedom they want their democracy you have kim dae-jung who's a political prisoner and so he's morphing into this into this uh politically repressive tyrant and you know that's not you know not completely inaccurate it's not inaccurate at all but they they make kim jae-gyu out to be like this guy who while he was willing to go along with uh pak jung-hee he just like pak jung-hee was just going way too far he was just going way too far he was becoming way too fascist and yeah, one of those convenient come to democracy moments that mm-hmm. often happens to yes. political competitors and, and he gets so upset one night he just gets so upset in a fit of passion the head, the director of the Central Intelligence Agency, murder and it shoots, <laughs> shoots the president of South Korea and his bodyguard and kills them, just in a fit of democracy and emotional passion. In a fit of de- democracy. <laughs> so, and uh, what's if you want my opinion on this, I mean, like it's obvious that our CIA is involved in this. There's a couple of factors that are going on at under Park Jung-hee. They were pursuing nuclear power and he was interested in obtaining nuclear weapons. He was in, he was interested in developing nuclear weapons and a nuclear South Korea meant in, in I mean, like we, we see with North Korea an independent, like a nuclear South Korea means a, South Korea independent of the United States. And Park Chung-hee had always been in this in this tango with the United States. The reason why I mentioned 1968 where things got hot was that's when it seemed like that like South Korea that the United States was letting things get hot in order to try and topple uh, Park Chung-hee. I mean, like he came, like yeah, you had that narrow election. You have these democracy movements that are ramping up, and you have these democ- you have these protests and democracy movements that are just like happening more and more rapidly in a way that they hadn't happened before on the level in South Korea that always existed. But he, this is this is happening much much more frequently now. Some of it, I'm sure, was organic, but there's no way all of it was organic. 
So he's trying to pursue this military independence for the country so that they are not completely under the, you know, under the thumb of the United States. At the same time, you also have, because he's a guy who's getting older, he's been in power for 18 years, and you have power-hungry people within the military as well who want their own, who want who want to be able to take power as well, one of which being Chun Du Huan, who has his own, he's got his own secret society as well. Uh, which when when a military man has a secret society, that's never a good that's never a good sign for whoever's in power. So, when Park Chung Hee is a assa- after Park Chung Hee is assassinated, one uh, there's a brief moment when just like with Sing Min Ri, you have like this brief democratic mo- moment, and then that person gets overthrown in another coup. And that was Chun Du Huan's coup. And one of the things that Chun Du Huan does during this transition period is he purges the KCIA and starts staffing it with his, you know, with his own reformatting it and staffing it with his own people. Now, it makes you wonder, like, was he was he just purging it of subversive elements or was he purging it of people who who knew? Like, it's hard to say. But one of the things about Chun Du Huan when he takes power and he's he's dictator and strongman of South Korea for the next eight years until they transition to democracy and then have another semi-strongman for another four years, is he is much more open to the United States and is willing to play ball with the United States because, uh, like I said, Park Chung-hee wanted to develop nuclear missiles. Chun Doo-hwan wanted more U.S. support because the U.S. was being cold towards South Korea at this time, it was in constant conflict with the U.S. State Department, and Chun Doo-hwan was a, was aware that they did not. That he the way I see it is that basically he wanted not only he wanted power, and he believed that they needed more U.S. support, so he was willing to play patsy and help. He, there's no like it, it's pretty kind of it's pretty well speculated. It's it's often speculated that he had some hand in the assassination. Who was? Who was doing what is hard to say, but we know that Kim Jae-gyu, the assassin, had been meeting with both uh, United States uh, diplomats and with other generals within the Korean military prior to the assassination of uh, Park Chung-hee. So I guess with all that, I'll just, you know, I, I'll leave people to wonder and to investigate themselves what you know, what really happened with the assassination of, of Park Chung-hee, but with his death, it, it really does, does close out this era. And everything after that, to me, has been a a footnote on all of that. And it actually even comes to a shameful end with the way that uh, Park Geun-hye, who was who is Park Chung-hee's daughter and the previous president of South Korea, her ignoble end with being impeached and taken out of, out of power democratically on corruption charges is a is that sad footnote to the legacy of a guy who who for better or worse had a vision for what he believed korea could be and should be and i'm i just want to kind of i didn't get a chance to read this at the beginning but from the the book the the pak chung hee era i think at, this is a good way to summarize the man Arising from our analysis of Park Chung-hee is a man with a very complex personality, which can be grasped only by combining analytical op- 
analytic opposites. First, a soldier of Imperial Japan before 1945 and an artillery officer in South Korea's rapidly modernizing armed forces after 1948, Pak looked like another bureaucrat, colorless in style and pragmatic in outlook. Beneath this appearance, however, hit his revolutionary ideological vision of rich nation, strong army. Second, as a son of a poor peasant, he also looked like a materialist only interested in economy first when presiding over monthly, weekly, and even daily meetings on industrial and construction projects. The way he commanded those meetings was, however, more Nietzschean, trying to instill in, his, in people his can-do spirit that idolized the power of the human will. Third, in a similarly paradoxical way, Park, Park saw Meiji Japan's uh, generals of low samurai class origins as his role models, but he ruled in most un-Japanese ways, preferring top-down rather than collective leadership and command rather than consensus building. Fourth, Park was a populist with a deep contempt for South Korea's traditional elites, whom he held responsible for the Chosun dynasty's colonial subjugation in 1910, but he was also an elitist with a uh, derigist vision of modernization, critical of his people's alleged passivity, opportunism, indolence, and defeatism. And it's sad to me that we may not see another man like Park Chung-hee in our lifetime, but I hope we will.